Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. The vibrations are great, and it isn't just the music. This is one scene everybody digs. People turning on to music and joining the crowd with peace in their hearts and grooving on love. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through Netflix looking for something to watch and you happen across a film you haven't seen that features an actor you've heard of from the past and might have a decent title or cover but once you read the description you start to suspect that it's a quote faith-based film and so you skip it and then you feel bad because you wish that films dealing with matters of faith and spirituality were better? I've long felt that there are some parallels between the second-rate Christian music of the 80s and 90s and the second-rate Christian film world we see today. And the more I pondered that parallel, one person came to mind who may have some answers for us. He survived, even managed to thrive, in the parallel universe of Christian rock in the 80s, and then found a way to break out, both as an artist himself and as an enabler of other artists in the 90s. Then, as a filmmaker, he did it all over again. On this episode of the podcast, we will visit with artist, songwriter, producer, filmmaker, and now teacher, Steve Taylor. We will also take a look back at the Lost Dogs Little Red Riding Hood album and the brand new Innocence Mission album, See You Tomorrow, on the Jukebox. Steve Taylor's music and his overall way of approaching art, thinking, and faith life in the modern era had a profound influence on me at a very young age. He refused to fit in any boxes, or frankly, to sit still long enough to even be defined. Although he came to prominence squarely in the middle of Christian Rock's golden era, which I usually define as the five years between 1982 and 1987, he never really seemed to be of that genre. He made music that didn't neatly fit into any category and was clearly not merely a safe Christian version of something better happening in the mainstream. His lyrics were sarcastic, thought-provoking, often toggling between the sneer of punk and the irreverence of Weird Al. He actively taught us how to think critically about our own community and to poke at what deserved to be poked. He tackled internal Christian culture issues like forced conformity, Cause if you wanna be one of his, gotta act like one of us. Be 
Racism in the church. Politics. It's a personal thing. I boldly state that my views on morality will have to wait till my personal life's out of the public eye and the limitation statute to protect my alibi. I'm devout, I'm sincere, and I'm proud to say that it's had exactly no effect on who I am today. I believe for the benefit of all mankind in the total separation of church and mind. Abusive pastors. Taking notebooks, turn with me to the chapter on authority. Do you drop the chain of command? Rule your family with an iron hand. I dispense little pills of power from my hideaway at every tower. From the cover of heaven's gate. But his barbs flew outward too, tackling things like moral relativism, postmodern media, celebrity worship, and promiscuity. One thing he didn't seem to care about was making people comfortable. He understood that rock music was supposed to have a certain edge to it, and he polished his to a shine. A brief aside here, true story, in 1986, I was 16, I was a finalist in a Steve Taylor lip sync contest. I performed Meltdown on stage with two other guys, three girls performed a Sheila Walsh song as well, before Steve played at the Odeum in Villa Park. I'll find the YouTube clip and I'll link to it in the show notes page for this episode. So yes, I was a huge fan and make no claims to objectivity here. By the time Taylor released his third full-length album, I predict 1990, in 1987, he had fully come into his own as a songwriter, producer, cultural commentator, and as a live performer. I predict was edgier, smarter, and tighter, and it relied less on references to the Christian subculture. Its first single, I Blew Up the Clinic Real Good, was a darkly comic satire about a deeply disturbed ice cream man who blew up the local abortion clinic because he was afraid it was going to deplete his future customer base. It was misunderstood by people on all sides of the abortion debate and was accompanied by a wonderful music video directed by Steve, as were several other songs on the album. In fact, he released what would be called a visual album on VHS, as I recall. But as Taylor got better at his craft, opposition to his music from within the evangelical world grew. People even complained about his album covers. So he took some time off and put some distance between himself and the Christian music industry that didn't seem to understand what to do with him. In 1991, he re-emerged as the frontman of a mainstream alternative rock band called Chagall Guevara, a heady reference to radical art, which included guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter Dave Perkins, and former Phil Keggy band guitarist Lynn Nichols. 
Chagall's one album, for the major label MCA no less, was a modern rock gem, flawless in concept and execution, and, sadly, doomed to obscurity. It seemed that Steve Taylor was trapped in a sort of twilight zone, way too legit for Christian music and too deeply connected to his faith and the Christian community for mainstream rock. Taylor returned to the Christian scene in the early 90s with a breathtaking album called Squint and a follow-up live album, and then transitioned into a completely new season. While working on short films for bands here and there, he also came into his own as a massively successful producer. His ear for not only the elements that made a record sound good, but the compositional content that made songs work were queued up perfectly for the 90s. In the Christian world, he practically reinvented the Newsboys and later worked with Guardian. But his heart had always been to make music that made sense beyond the walls of the Christian ghetto, as we called it. When he started working with Sixpence None the Richer, and then signed Burlap to Cashmere and Chevelle to his Squint label, the era of Steve Taylor, super producer and A&R genius, our terms, never his, was born. Sixpence sold millions of records and had one of the biggest global hits of 1997, and critics in the mainstream adored Chevelle. It seemed maybe Taylor had found his calling. When a project gets as big as Sixpence got, everyone at corporate headquarters gets involved. There was no way the Warner Brothers mothership was going to leave Steve's squint boutique alone with a cash cow like that in the stable. So Steve eventually departed, heading for the world of film, which is actually what he was working on before music had sidetracked him decades earlier. He produced a decent faith-based film for Sony called The Second Chance, and then spent years working on the film adaptation of Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz, a movie that only got finished due to the rabid support of a bunch of fans who came to its rescue during the early days of Kickstarter. It was, like so much of Steve's career, way too Christian for Hollywood and way too real for the church. Steve was back in that Twilight Zone. I don't usually set these conversations up this much, but I don't usually get to talk to someone with a story like Steve's, and I know that not everyone listening here will know the full context. 
Steve is currently teaching filmmaking at Lipscomb University in Nashville and recently revived his musical pursuits with a sort of all-star band of brothers he calls Steve Taylor and the Perfect Foil. That band includes original Newsboys member Peter Furler on drums, John Mark Painter of Fleming and John on bass, and Jimmy Abegg of the Ragamuffins, Vector, and the Charlie Peacock Band on guitar. They even did a version with Daniel Smith of the Danielson family, which they dubbed Steve Taylor and the Danielson Foil. I'm not exaggerating when I say that not only does Steve still got it, but his most recent musical work is definitely among the best stuff he has ever done. We're going to catch up with Steve on this episode of the podcast and talk about music and film and faith and what the ancient Greeks might have to teach us about making spiritually informed art that doesn't suck. Steve Taylor and I sat down in his office at Lipscomb to talk about what he is doing now and where it all started. Might he have the secret answer to the question that has dogged me for so long? Why is so much Christian art so bad? There were students milling about, working on projects, and getting ready for the weekend as the recorder started rolling. We are here in the office of none other than Steve Taylor, who was on the cover of True Tunes back in the day, and uh, you were opening for Res Band at the first Christian rock show that I ever went to. Wow. I was 14 years old. This opening act nobody had heard of, <laughs> they introduced, and you came out with a white lab coat, and I was transfixed and, and you know it was a great show the lighting rig almost fell on your head halfway through the show but thank you for being on the true tunes podcast and being with us steve it is my pleasure i'm glad i was able to add that uh, moment to your childhood <laughs> and now you're here at lipscomb university and you're a, a film professor you're teaching kids how to make movies can you just kind of give us a little sketch of what your life is like right now the college gig, I'm the filmmaker in residence here, and they give me a very wide berth. So um, uh, I think the first year I was here, I was I had a tour in the spring and a tour in the fall, and they were fine with that. Uh, if a project has come up that I needed to make, they would give me a a, uh, a leave of absence. So it's it's been a pretty great uh, gig. I really like uh, teaching, and so that's rewarding and then uh in some ways we get to build the uh educational version of which of what i wish i would have had when i was uh in college which is uh we're in the college of entertainment and the arts which was uh we picked that name deliberately because uh i don't think there's another college of entertainment in the arts in the country P people in academia don't typically like the word entertainment and so uh, that's one reason we decided to lead with that um, and uh, <laughs> always the provocateur <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, we started with a film program and then uh, the dean of our college said hey what if we uh, started like a commercial music program because Lipscomb had only had a classical music program and I said well I don't think that's probably a good idea based on a, a, a university down the street called Belmont that's been doing that for a while and I said the only reason I think it would work is if we got someone like 
Charlie Peacock to start it, but I don't think he'll be interested. And I called him up and got him on a good day. And so Charlie started the commercial music program here. And, uh, and now Brown Bannister is uh, running it. Uh, Mike Naraki, the co-creator of VeggieTales, is uh, here on staff. Uh, Tom Bancroft, who was a Disney animator, is uh, runs an animation program. And uh, so it's like a, a really pretty great kind of playground and uh and all within the context of christian university so you actually studied filmmaking in college all those years ago i did yeah i've studied filmmaking at colorado university in boulder which was uh a, you know a pretty radical environment and uh the only problem with their film program which was pretty fledgling at the time is that it was strictly avant-garde filmmaking so i I was interested in learning how to tell stories, and that was not really allowed in our program. <laughs> you just had to create reactions. Exactly. It was good. <laughs> yes, it was good training for making music videos. Not so good for telling stories, but that was it was fine. Right now, it feels like there's a Christian movie moment happening that reminds me a lot of the Christian music moment in the '80s, where. Uh, you can tell that a movie is a Christian movie before you hear the story, the way we could tell that a song was a Christian song before. Like, you could tell from the keyboard sound, oh, this is CCM music. Like, <laughs> yes. They didn't realize that that Yamaha DX7 had other sounds on it. They just used the first one that when you plugged it in and turned it on. Like, My theory back then was that, at least one of them, was that um, the music was secondary to the agenda, and so the artfulness of it wasn't as important for certainly the industrial elements and the church elements behind it. But it feels like that now with a lot of the faith-based Christian movies that there's a um, this wave of very profitable, very successful, I wouldn't call them good Christian movies. Um, would you say that um, doing a film program in a Christian school is, uh, is part of that about helping Christian movies be better or is it a what's the what's the agenda that a Christian school has when it comes to having a film program well it's it's primarily helping helping us learn how to tell stories better uh, and to tell better stories um, I'm happy if some of our students go and and work with uh, within more kind of I guess faith-based movies genres but mostly we just want them to be better storytellers and uh you know as followers of jesus make uh better content i guess we don't talk a lot about that in class but uh, partly because um you know similar to the the way music and christian music kind of evolved right now i think uh faith-based filmmaking has become pretty institutionalized we don't talk a lot about um, kind of uh, mainstream versus faith-based filmmaking, mostly because we uh, are, I guess in some ways, we're trying to act like it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, uh, I think I've got some friends who were very involved in that and, and, and some friends who were making some of the better uh, faith-based movies. Similar to where Christian music sort of evolved right now, faith-based filmmaking seems to be in a stage where it's become uh, institutionalized to the extent that uh, they've decided it's got to be one thing. And uh, if it's not that one thing, it doesn't belong in 
whatever they're doing. And that one thing is still very family friendly and uh, uh, typically has some kind of uh, conversion story in it. And uh, it's a hard needle to thread because conversion stories are almost of their very essence, not dramatic. They, they employ something called deus ex machina, which is the one thing you're not supposed to do in a drama, which means, uh, it's a, I think it's a Greek term back when uh, the, the Greeks were inventing theater, and it means God by the machine. It, at the end of not very good Greek plays, the gods would get lowered down on an elevator onto the platform where the mortals were and essentially just sort everything out, <laughs> but sort the drama out, right? So it's... Uh, Sort of like uh, when an act of God is the answer to a dramatic question that's uh, inherently not dramatic. <laughs> wow. So, they're, so they're, this has been a problem for a while in a, storytelling. It has been a problem for not a while. Unique to evangelicals. Yeah. Well, think about it and the difference between, say, a movie like, uh, um, oh, what the what was the movie with Robert Duvall where. Uh, uh, he plays a washed-up country singer, Tender Mercies. Oh, yeah. uh, fantastic movie, and um, it has a conversion story, but the conversion story happens in the first probably 20 pages, and then everything in his life goes wrong, right? Right. And so that is a dramatic story because you start with a uh, situation where a person has a life-changing experience, and then everything goes wrong as opposed to them thinking they would probably get better. Um, whereas most Christian movies start off with a problem and then the end the conversion is where things turn around right but the conversion while i believe it as a fellow christian it's inherently not dramatic and so that's that's just a hard thing to pull off and then if that becomes pretty much the only thing the genre is then it becomes even more difficult and more uh you know hard to make anything new or to make anything fresh or to make something that feels original so it's, 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 a tough, it's a tough genre to crack. It's a tough one to crack as a storyteller. In the 80s with, with music and the 90s, it cost a lot to make records. So we needed the labels to find the audience and market it and all that kind of stuff. And now records are really inexpensive to make, relatively. And so we can afford to make interesting music and stream it and see who likes it. But films still cost a lot of money to make. Yeah, so, I know. So the stakes I, are higher. The stakes are so much higher. And even like a low-budget movie, it's hard to do anything for less than, say, a million dollars. And even that's like barely anything. So I, that's part of the problem is, is the risk becomes so high that I think, uh, you know, people understandably with money want to go for the safe bets what is your advice for these students like as you're working with them for a number of years what's what's the good news for them well uh one piece of good news is that uh the juice right now in many ways is in television and and streaming and so uh whereas opportunities for making movies just seem to keep narrowing uh, opportunities to make content keep growing and uh for better or for worse, we live in such a, a visual age that uh, the need for uh, visual content is probably only going to keep expanding. And so the people who are going to be most successful at that are the ones who are, know how to tell stories visually and can create compelling characters and interesting situations and, uh, uh, you know, 
know how to create dynamic content that will keep people engaged. You were studying film in college and you ended up being a Christian musician for a number of years. So how did you get so sidetracked and and did you intend to do Christian music and did you know what you were getting yourself into when when that happened? Yeah, so uh, I was studying actually, music was my major and filmmaking was kind of like a minor. They didn't have a full-fledged department, but I took all the classes. when I graduated, I was equally interested in music and film. It's just that uh, I figured it would be easier to be in a band in my 20s and a filmmaker in my 50s than the reverse. So uh, <laughs> That's probably true. Always thinking ahead. <laughs> um, and uh, at that point, m- Christian music was enough of a thing that, uh, you know, I was, I was certainly aware of it and certainly a fan of some things, like uh, I think Res Band was a, was a favorite and... Uh, I knew who Larry Norman was and uh, second chapter of Acts and Keith Green. Um, but I, I wasn't particularly interested in becoming a Christian artist. Uh, I was making demos at the time. And, that, you know, even that cost a lot of money back then. But I was like a, a janitor. And so I was saving my money to make demos. And one day in Boulder after classes, I went to get my hair cut. My barber was always asking what was up. And I said, well, you know, I've been making some music. He said, oh, really, you know, can I hear it? And I said, well, yeah, if you want to. I mean, you're happy to have anybody listen at that point. So I gave him a cassette, and he really liked it. And he said, I got this friend who's a publisher who just got tired of the scene in L.A. and just moved to Boulder to start a bookstore. Can I give it to him? And I said, sure. So we gave it to him, and he said, oh, my friend really likes it. And he had been uh, at Warner Brothers Publishing. So... Uh, he said he'd be happy to introduce you to some of his friends if you wanted to go out to L.A. and make a trip. Sure, why not? So I went out to L.A. with my tapes, and he had set up like meetings with like Warner Brothers and Arista and maybe another label. And to a person, they all said, we really like this music. It was you know, kind of a punk new wave hybrid. Uh, but they said that the lyrics are just like, they're kind of kind of Christian but they don't like they you know I just we just don't think there's a a market for this um I think maybe like what you're gonna do your numbers up was one of the songs and I want to be a clone I might have been in the in the mix um so I think their attitude was was I think we we think we're concerned that the lyrics would offend our listeners well uh and so I thought, well, if you know, if it's the lyric content that was the problem, I'd, maybe I should talk to a Christian labels. So uh, I had another friend who set up a meeting with uh, Word and with Sparrow, and I met with both of them, got them the tapes, and I, I you know, this sounds like a joke. It really wasn't. Their response was, uh, "We don't really like this music, and your lyrics would offend our listeners." <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of summed up. You know, your entire career. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But eventually, uh, uh, this same friend got me on at the Christian music uh, seminar in Estes Park that happened every summer, and he got me a two-song slot. I put a band together. Uh, Billy Ray Hearn, the head of Sparrow, was in the audience. I'm not totally sure that he got it, but the audience, which was made up of a lot of plants that my friends made sure when Steve goes on cheer really loudly uh, he liked that he responded to that and uh, Billy was good at that he was good right and he just he literally met me at the side of the stage and said I want to do a deal so that's 
how I got signed. You say humanist philosophy is what it's all about. You're so open-minded, did your brain leak out? What you gonna do when your number's up? Time to lay diplomas down. Did you worry at all about getting on that bus? Oh man, well for one, I was just thrilled that anybody cared, and second, um, I think I left LA feeling like I'm gonna be fortunate if anybody wants to do this. I, I didn't, the mainstream labels I met with, they didn't leave even leave a crack open. I mean, I think they genuinely liked the music, but I just don't think they saw any way of that content getting a platform on a mainstream label and I took, just took that to be the right. truth. And I, I guess we could probably make a good argument that they were right, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, who would be the, what would be the group outside of, I guess, well, you two, suppose, I suppose. But they were never as in no, your face lyrically. Not like that, because it was, because part of the lyrics were kind of insider, you know, baseball, right? right. They, they were, they were poking fun at a, hypocrisy within the church. You have to know what what heavy metal is to understand Spinal Tap. Like, yes. and so you have to understand Christian subculture to get Steve Taylor's first yes. four, five album. I think that's absolutely fair, yes. What I wondered later on, going back and, and listening to this stuff, especially in the 90s, when you can, or even Chagall, right. so at that moment, when you sign with MCA, right. you put together a dream team, and you gave it the real college try, you know, and, um, but it seemed to me like you were constantly leaning toward the mainstream, toward the, the world, not even the mainstream, like it just towards where the people were and away from the subculture. So at what point did you start to feel like you had been hoodwinked or somehow were not where you really wanted to be creatively? Well, I got no one to blame but myself because uh, I, I don't. I don't really. I, I shouldn't say I don't have any regrets. I there are there are songs on every album that I regret recording, but that's mostly because I don't think they're very good songs. I remember working on the box set with you, and I was like, "What about this song?" No, we're not putting right. that one on there. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, it's it's a painful process. But um, uh, Sparrow, as an example, gave me absolute creative control over everything. They never said this song and not this song. I just assume that's how every artist was treated. So uh, so I got, I, I had great support from the Christian labels I was on and, and had really, for the most part, really good experiences. It just, at, at, after the uh, I Critic 1990 album, it just was obvious that this was not going where this was not going where I wanted it to go. In some ways, at that point, Christian music labels were becoming more conservative, and I was getting more and more frustrated at the at the uh, the system. Not necessarily at my own record label, just at the system itself. We're going to cut away from our conversation here for just a bit and crank up the jukebox, but we'll be back with Steve Taylor in just a few minutes. up the common streets The lost dogs bark the Nicene Creed And dream of bones to eat Raise eagle teams, hot joe and beans To see the desert heat 
When the Lost Dogs released their debut, Scenic Routes, in 1992, it was expected to be a one-off project. Everyone knew that they were our alternate universe's traveling Wilburys, and each of the four members, Terry Taylor of Daniel Amos and the Swirling Eddies, Mike Rowe of the 77s, Derry Daughtery of the Choir, and Gene Eugene of Adam Again, were busy with their own bands, and most of them were trying to run labels and produce other artists' albums. The Lost Dogs was a loosey-goosey romp, good fun while it lasted. But unlike the Wilburys, something happened with the Lost Dogs that turned them into a real band. When they reconvened for a second album, this time with more preparation and a hint of what might actually be possible, magic happened. Little Red Riding Hood, released originally in 1993 and just recently remastered and reissued with a load of bonus material, is certainly among the most important, creatively coherent, and downright enjoyable albums in the history of this weird genre. In fact, it may be one of the most perfect examples of the concept of gospel rock to have ever been recorded. You go down under water and you breathe again. A thousand birds in the entryway, a fiery branch burns bright with a holy Keep in mind, this was still a few years before the term Americana was commonly used to describe a type of music, but the Lost Dogs combined all of the elements that made American music work – country, blues, rock, gospel, pop, and even show tunes – into a sort of gumbo that would be impossible for most groups to pull off without sounding like some kind of cheeky review. It's not unlike the way Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young melded folk and rock, or the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band combined country and bluegrass, or the band leaned into blues and soul, except that the dogs did it all. Armed with four lead singers and 16 songs, we loved to fill those newfangled CDs to the brim back then, they had chops to cover a lot of real estate. The extra behind-the-scenes songs and clips included on the new reissue reveal the creative dynamic at work between the artists and the great humor and chemistry that helped it all come together. hit of the record, if you can call it that, was certainly Pray Where You Are, a song I so wish Tom Petty would have covered at some point. But there's really not a skip track on the disc. 
There are novelty songs, such as Bad Indigestion and Rose Creepy Take on Good Ship Lollipop, Blues Jams, You Satisfy and Free at Last, and dreamy tunes such as No Room for Us and Jimmy. Down the middle, there's a batch of straight-up rock songs that have aged remarkably well. If you corralled this many lead singers, producers, and egos into a studio, you'd end up with a hot mess. With The Lost Dogs, it has always been different, and although the debut is a great record, the legend really begins with Little Red Riding Hood. The first time I saw you, I knew what I knew, that I could Working on songs till my fingers were blue Determined you'll know they're about And if I could fly And if you would stay for a little while And I'm almost gone I am a It's the right time to listen, a liar can learn, are we almost home, are we almost home? And oh, hearing Gene's voice again, just so sweet, Dunce Cap stands out 27 years later as a simply chilling and perfect song. If we ever do get around to creating a True Tunes Hall of Fame, Little Red Riding Hood may be in the inaugural class. Since their 1989 a debut, Lancaster, Pennsylvania-based The Innocence Mission has created a unique space for itself in the musical landscape in general, and in my life for sure. This is one band that has always had the ability to calm me, to slow me down and help me hear my own breathing. That's no small thing. There has always been a spiritual dimension woven artfully throughout its work, like a meditation, never dogmatically. You might call it grace incarnate. Right. 
Its new album, See You Tomorrow, which we started hearing singles from last year, appeared in January like a clearing in a wood. I played it on a Saturday morning and ended up repeating it again and again, literally all day long. It captivated me in the best possible way. This boat I started out here to say Before it rode ashore became a plane Over in the buildings of later day Over in the buildings and over my head Things that I started out here to say Went down the street and turned into a day We couldn't see, we could not explain We couldn't see it, we could not explain The Innocence Mission is now Mike Bits on bass guitar Don Paris on various guitars and backing vocals, with an occasional lead, and Karen Paris on lead vocals and guitar. Karen writes the lyrics as well, which really function as poetry on their own. And I know, it's easy to think of most song lyrics as a type of poetry, in that there's a meter to them and they often rhyme. But Paris's lyrics are different. They read, without the accompanying music, like true poems. The music is layered in to support that poetry. The effect, while not exactly hypnotic, is definitely enveloping. Karen's verse is simple, observational, and efficient, often lingering thoughtfully on the kind of details I blow right past in my life. She connects those details to much bigger thoughts and emotions, to deeper wells and expansive vistas. Dead brothers Williams said you don't ever talk. I know you best and I. See you shine a million stars out in the very dark Brilliant tourmaline, golden copper light Don't pay attention to them, okay? Tomorrow, today, today, tomorrow See you tomorrow, I'll see you tomorrow this album opens with The Brothers Williams Said, a perfect example of the Innocence Mission's deft touch with melody, ambience, and narrative. And the lyric, as wistful as it is, leaves us with a glimpse of the fragile power of kindness. On Your Side demonstrates this group's ability to create actual hooks, delicate as they may sound, and may be one of the most immediately accessible songs the band has released since their major label days. Sound. 
There are so many examples. I'll just let you discover them for yourself. But let me suggest that See You Tomorrow is the kind of album to listen to with a cup of coffee or on a long walk. It's worthy of concentration and reflection. And if you're not careful, it might just take your whole day. I needed that, and you probably do too. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. And now back to our conversation with Steve Taylor. We just had the 25th anniversary of the Squint record, and it's been fun to go back and revisit that stuff, and what a great record it was. And then you transition into this role of the producer, which to me felt... You had a very artistic hand as a producer, but then you really got very intentional about trying to stretch what was known as the Christian music world and try to just break it. And so with Sixpence, you definitely did, but why do you think it was so hard to have more success? Why, what, why was it so difficult to, to break that stereotype and to break that wall down? There were a couple dynamics. One was that a lot of Christian music's reputation was deserved, right? There was a a lot of bad stuff being made, but there was enough good that was just getting lumped in with the, the label that it was really frustrating to see a band as good as Sixpence have a, have a ceiling built in to what they could do. And so the label was really built on the idea of bands within Christian music that should be heard by the rest of the world. And, you know, they had probably benefited from being in that uh, subculture as far as getting an opportunity to record and tour and get better at what they were doing. But now was their time where they needed to be heard by a bigger audience. I didn't realize how hard the uh, perception would be to break. And so... Uh, I think Sixpence probably would have possibly broken through even sooner. Uh, but man, the, just the Christian music tag was really hard to overcome. And we went to great lengths to, <laughs> to try and bury it as much as possible because it was not going to help them at all for, for, for the most part. It, it served to give them on, on that album a, a, like enough of a launch so that... Uh, you know, they had a they had a, a, a base when they went out to tour, but it was just a really hard. Uh, you know, they should have been on Saturday Night Live, but instead, uh, Kiss Me gets played in a Saturday Night Live sketch where you know Jesus is working out in a gym and Kiss Me is playing in the background. Right. I thought, well, why did you pick Kiss Me? Well, it's because you know the clever writers thought, well, this is a you know a Christian band, so this will be funny, ha ha. Right. And you know that's. It's kind of funny, but it's not really fair. And, and the other thing is that Sixpence was never a band that lyrically was dealing was doing that kind of CCM music no. ever from no. the very first record on. That's right. So if you were judging them based on their actual work, you would never pick that up. Right. You had to know something about the subculture and the labels and the distribution mechanism and all of that nonsense. You had to know something about that in order to judge them that way. Right, right. Because you could certainly not pick it up 
unless you happen to know that the one lyric of one song on the first record was actually based on a psalm. But hey, <laughs> Dylan and everybody else have done that too. Yeah, right. Leonard right. Cohen's done that. So it always drove me nuts that people tried to put them of all bands in that hole because from day one they weren't. But that does get to the point of the the sort of artificial constructs that existed, the, the fences that existed around this stuff that were really a function of marketing and a function of industry. It had nothing to do with the work, had nothing right. to do with the art. Now that that stuff is down and it's gone, uh, when you're talking to students, when you're talking to young artists that you come up against, you know, how do you feel about the, the barriers and the opportunities in the future for creatives who might have a spiritual perspective, they might have a soulful, even gospel kind of inclination to what they do, but they want to sing for everybody. Uh, what do you have to say to them? Well, it's a lot easier for me to speak to them just because I have probably better advice. What's awkward now is when because I teach a songwriting class here too, and it's one of my favorite classes to teach. But, you know, I'll have out of every class of 15, there might be two or three that are interested in being worship artists or, or more kind of Christian-oriented artists. And unfortunately, I don't actually know the state of the art in that world, so I don't have a whole lot. I, I'm not, I'm not as, as, as good at being able to give them advice. I in, encourage them as best I could, but I can, but I don't necessarily know... Uh, how that world works anymore so but in terms of artist development and finding an audience and following that kind of gut that creative gut whether it's songwriting or filmmaking that you know what do you have to tell to tell them what kind of warnings or what sort of inspirational advice do you have right. to them when it comes to that side of things um i tell them that their work ethic is more important than their uh talent um and I, I think that's probably a good thing that uh, uh, that some of this can be learned. It, it's not all innate talent. Uh, I tell them that um, uh, talent without a work ethic is almost useless, and um, uh, you know, I, I advise them on the uh, importance of character. <laughs> and uh, uh, I love working within a Lipscomb University as a Christian university. Uh, in the sense that the faculty are Christians, the students, nobody comes here and says, well, nobody told me this is a Christian university, but actually the students here don't have to sign do some kind of statement of faith or something. So we get a, a bit of a mix student-wise, but, um, uh, but because it's a Christian university, I can you know, talk about my Christian faith and talk about what I've learned, and uh, I don't have to pull any punches from that standpoint. So that's been nice. Where does music fit into your life at this point? You did that Goliath record. You did the record with Daniel Smith. Um, so where did, what shelf is that on at this point? Because the Goliath record was ridiculous. I mean, that was a fantastic record. And the, and the, um, the, the one you did with Dan was just bizarre. I loved it. But it was like, that was creatively, that was definitely stretching out and doing some stuff that you could tell you were, you didn't care 
if it was ever going to be played on the radio, right. for sure. And funny enough, it wasn't. <laughs> Success, right? We've made um, it. But, um, so where does writing music and creating your own music fit into the mix for you? It's funny, because I was talking to Dan just two days ago, and uh, we were talking about the experience of doing the EP um, with Steve Albany in Chicago, and I said, you know, I almost don't ever want to record again because it'll never be as good as it was recording with Steve for six days. It was like hyper analog, you know, everything going straight to two inch, virtually no outboard gear. Like it was it was a very much of a purist exercise. It was pretty much, you know, live to tape. There was no punching in. Is, is a trip too. Albini's a trip too. He was a, a total blast yeah. uh, to work with, uh, having worked with him before, you know, 20 years earlier on the Chevelle album and then, uh, I remember at one point, day three or day four, he uh, he turned to me and he said, I just want you to know, you guys are hitting this out of the park. And I'm thinking, what? You, Steve Albini, you're telling us this? <laughs> um, so I was telling Dan, like, I don't know if I ever want to record again because it was just such a great experience. It'll never be that good. You know, and there was no sense. When I'm producing an album, you know, you get into the weeds and you're trying to find a way out and you're, you know, you're overthinking things and you're uh, just can go on and on and on and I've, I've gotten better at keeping things moving but here it was like six days and we're done and uh, you know and working with Dan was such a blast and I have so much admiration for him and it was a, a total collaboration you know uh, Peter and Jimmy and John and Dan we were all writing together we were working on lyrics together like we were trying to find something where the two kind of sensibilities would match between our band and and Daniel who was now joining our band and but you know certainly needed to have a like an outsized voice because he's got a very distinct distinct artistry um so yeah we haven't done anything since doing that and doing some touring behind it I probably will do something again but uh uh you know all of us are still friends and uh but you know, Jimmy's losing his eyesight, and John is actually working with here's working with us here at Lipscomb, which is pretty extraordinary. And of course, Peter's back with the reformed Newsboys, so I don't know when it'll happen, but it may still happen sometime. When you went back and revisited and, and re-released the Squint record and it finally came out that last year, when you go back and listen to stuff like that, what? how does it strike you? Like when, <laughs> when you listen to, especially that record, but um, how does your old work strike you when you go back and listen to it? Well, that's still the album that I can listen to without a lot of cringing. Um, that one came after the Chagall Guevara experience. Um, that was kind of the first album that I self-produced and uh you know had learned a lot from the experience of being in a band with the other guys in in chagall and having uh matt our producer who's you know gone on to do a lot of great work uh learning from him as well um matt wallace uh so i for the most part still really really like that record and uh 
so yeah, that was a nice. That was actually a nice experience to hear something 25 years old that didn't have moments that drove me crazy. I really can't say that for any of the other albums. Vision came, saw the odds, a hundred little gods on a gilded wheel. These have tried to take your place, but father, by your grace, I will never kneel. talk with steve taylor for hours and we have actually we'll have him back on the podcast again lord willing and it encourages me to know that a new generation is being mentored by him like i was thank you again steve taylor as i climb up on my soapbox this time i'm thinking about that twilight zone space i talked about steve taylor winding up in so often It seems so many of the artists that most inspired me, in addition to Steve, people like Mark Hurd, the 77s, Larry Norman, Resban, and others, never really intended on making music that was only heard by Christians. They expected to be heard by everyone. The Christian music box emerged later and labored to enclose them. Now, there's good people there for sure, and when you're on stage looking out at a sea of faces, take it from me, as an artist, you're just glad to have an audience. But the problem, as I see it, is that the apparatus that assembled that audience has a different agenda than you, the artist, might. Where you might still be concerned about making interesting music, telling good stories, they care more about filling seats. You see, this is not a Christian music problem, this is a music business problem. But for some of us, the spiritual overlap between great music and deep eternal truths was so profound it was like a lightning strike. We didn't need an altar call to make it official. Whether it was U2 or Dylan or Daniel Amos or Over the Rhine, the deus ex machina, the bolting on of God to the big machine cheapened the whole thing. I remember when one artist came to play at the club upstairs at True Tunes, and during dinner asked if he was expected to deliver an altar call in a certain way. I told him that he was welcome to say whatever he felt genuinely moved to say, but that we didn't expect or require any kind of altar call or testimony or anything. Just tell the truth and play great music. He was so relieved it looked like he was about to cry. He had been on a short tour, and nearly every gig had been in a Christian venue that demanded he preach and called kids forward to repent and get saved at some point during the show. 
He didn't feel called or qualified at 18 years old and with no theological training to do that kind of work. You should have seen his band smiling on stage that night, free of the burden of unrealistic artificial expectations. The few things he did share were heartfelt, sincere, and meaningful. They were telling better stories and telling stories better. I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, a church riddled with controversy and division, where in chapter 9, verse 19, he riffs on the beauty and power of freedom when it is used properly. Though I am free and belong to no one, he begins, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the weak, he would become weak, basically saying that he would lay down his own freedom if that's what love looked like in any particular situation. If it meant that someone else would hear about Jesus, he'd do whatever it takes. But this act of grace, like Christ's, originated from within Paul's heart and gut. It was not foisted upon him by a church culture with an agenda to fill seats, sell stuff, or reinforce a certain social code. He did it out of his own freedom. As I look back at Steve Taylor's life and work, I see a man who has repeatedly become exactly what the audience he is serving needs. Be that youth group kids like me in the 80s, a CCM band like the Newsboys in the early 90s, or Sixpence, Chevelle, Donald Miller, or the students at Lipscomb. Yes, with his Goliath album, he more than proved he still had it. But more importantly, what I have seen is that he still knows how to lay it down. It's ultimately not about him. When an industry exec once half-jokingly said that Steve had Steve-tailored something again, meaning it was just a bit too good for the church and a bit too sincerely spiritual for the rest of the world, I laughed, but then I thought, man, what an honor to have your name turned into a verb for doing something that important for that long, to be telling better stories than maybe the machine was interested in selling. I realized, I had chosen this particular role model very well. And with that, I will climb down off the soapbox. And that's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank my good friend and producer Bruce Brown for making the show sound so good. And thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for the special mix of Full Circle that they have provided for our theme song. And for a full list of all of the music used on this episode of the show, please check out the show notes at truetunes.com. Please tell your friends about the show. Leave us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you can. We need all the help we can get to get the word spreading far and wide about the podcast. And every bit you can do definitely goes a long way. And remember, everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson saying stay tuned and stay true.